Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 2nd, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests are Costa Mesa Mayor Katrina Foley, running in the March 9th, 2021 special election in the Orange County Board of Supervisors 2nd District. And in the second segment is a substantive conversation with Vicki Shep, CEO of Girl Scouts of Orange County. Let's now begin with my first guest, Costa Mesa Mayor Katrina Foley, to talk about her candidacy in the March 9th, 2021 special election to fill the recently vacated seat and the Orange County Board of Supervisors 2nd District. Although the 2nd District includes Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach, Cypress, La Palma, Rossmore, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Stanton, Buena Park, Los Alamitos, Seal Beach, that the reach of this Board of Supervisor office extends throughout the county of 3.3 million constituents. My interview assumes little interest in the horse race and a great deal of interest in policies and priorities. And I advise listeners to continue to consume media with that in mind. I'm reaching out to all the candidates at this date of taping January 30th. The only person who has answered my request for an interview is my guest today, Mayor Katrina Foley. Let me introduce her now. She served on the Costa Mesa City Council as council member or mayor for 14 years, as well as one four-year term on the Newport Mesa Unified School District. She is president of her law practice, the Foley Group, dealing in contract negotiations for artists and athletes, civil business and employee litigation, and nonprofit compliance. Her board and agency posts include Travel Costa Mesa, the Toll Corridor Agency Boards, Newport Mesa Arts Commission, Bike and Walkability Committee, Pension and Finance Advisory and Special Districts Committee, and the Orange County Fair Board, the Redevelopment Agency and City Council liaison to the following, the Orange County Fair, Newport Mesa Unified School District, Youth in Government Program, Child Care and Youth Services Committee, Cultural Arts Committee, and Santa Ana River Trail Blue Ribbon Committee. She's chaired the Coast Community College Measure M Oversight Committee. She was president founder of the National Scholastic Skateboarding League. She comes to us today from her home in Costa Mesa and was previously on the show. So I welcome her back to Ask a Leader, Mayor Katrina Foley. Hello, good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Claudia. It's great to be here. And I'm I'm surprised I'm the only person that would take advantage of talking to you and uh, talking about the issues that Orange County residents care about and sharing my vision for uh, Orange County. And it's not for lack of trying, and I'll, I'll give it another go here. But first, we're going to work from the general to a little bit more of the less general. Mayor Foley, as a member of Costa Mesa's city council with a forward-moving progressive majority, how would you transition to a county board of supervisors, which is reactive, ideologically conservative, and opaque in the way it performs? Well, I'm not too worried about that because remember, I wasn't always the mayor of a progressive majority that I was leading. Most of the time that I served on the city council, I was um, in the minority in terms of my 
view. And so I had to develop ways to work smarter and, and to build coalitions in order to get uh, projects, in order to uh, implement initiatives that I cared about, initiatives relating to uh, climate change, initiatives re relating to kids and after school programs, initiatives relating to you know housing and homelessness. And those are things that I had been doing for many, many years, but by building different coalitions, working with the community, bringing the community in and finding ways to find three votes on the dais. So it can be done. And so I'm not really worried about that. It just means you have to work harder and I'm a hard worker, so it's okay. Well, actually, how do you intend to lead a district now, this second district that's part conspiracy stoking right wing, part rattled seniors, part disengaged constituents about local government, and part exhausted essential workers. Yeah. What would be your first imperative messaging to the district and the county at large? So, wow, that's a lot to unpack. But so I, you know, one of the things I know as a mayor in the district is the lack of collaboration by the supervisor, whether it was our prior supervisor, Michelle Steele, or whether it was one of my opponents who used to hold this seat before me. Uh, they didn't collaborate with the cities. So the first thing I'm gonna do in the first 100 days is I'm going to pull all the mayors together and I'm gonna have a meeting, ask them to share with me and my team, what are your top uh, funding and legislative and community priorities that, that you have struggled to have county support on and that we can provide support and resources to you. So that's the first step. And I know how to do that. I know what's lacking because I'm there. I'm living it right now today. Um, and so that I think will help a lot. Um, I'm not gonna get caught up in the conspiracy theorists. I think that uh, the voters have spoken. I saw some polling just this week that showed that President Biden is just overwhelmingly supported in this district. So Republicans- Who's, Who conducted that poll? My poll. Your poll, okay. Yeah. And so um, overwhelmingly supported. And so I think that people are ready to heal. Um, we've had a terrible uh, start to the new year with regard to the insurrection. And I personally this morning read about uh, another Orange County resident who is someone that was going to the Orange County Board of Supervisors, that supervisor, one of the supervisors, at least one, was kind of enabling him. Um, he came to my home. He went to Dr. Quick's home. He rallied uh, anti-mask protests in Costa Mesa and throughout Orange County. And now he's having the FBI investigate him for his role in the Capitol insurrection. So we cannot enable that type of bad behavior that's a threat to our democracy. Um, and so we have to follow the science. We have to lead with the expert advice. We have to listen to our experts in the field, our medical officers, our health officials, our essential workers, our public employees. And I'll be pulling groups together to come up with a plan and working collaboratively, even with people who didn't vote for me. Well, I want to say as a, a pretty tight follower of many 
of the County Board of Supervisor meetings once the pandemic was in full swing here in Orange County and beyond, watching the Board of Supervisors meetings and then watching the press conferences that were held, it had a feel for like a dress rehearsal for real fomenting in the region and beyond. And, and that's why I'm talking about a rattled mm -hmm. and really concerned public. I mean, I and the, the rattled constituents are people that feel they're threatened by how those people that were teeing up at those meetings and how they comment in the chats yeah. alongside the press conferences. And then we saw where they were, we, some of us anticipated that they were going to, and we, or we thought when we watched the insurrection unfold on January 6th, they were either recognized or we, we recognized that rhetoric. It was, they, they practiced, they were rehearsing for it all. So the messaging that the, the board of supervisors serving on that body, that they were enabling that rehearsal to take place they were enabling it in their own messaging, lack of wearing masks, allowing the sheriff's office not to enforce mask wearing at various businesses that were allowed at some points to reopen. So how do you message? You're there on the dais. What are you gonna say? How are you gonna look when you're uh, trying to roll back that kind of enabling that's gone on by our elected officials? Well, let me just say this. I mean, I'm not going to say any different, anything different than what I've been saying for the last 11 months, and which is wear a mask, wear it everywhere, uh, wash your hands, watch your distance, avoid crowds, don't come to work if you're sick, and at civ at the civic center uh, in the county buildings, I can assure you that um, I will be calling attention to protecting our employees. There is COVID rampant running through the county employees uh, because there was this view uh, early on and, an, and a misleading of the public about, oh, it's just the flu, it's a hoax. That's just irresponsible and reckless in my opinion. And the, the fact that at City Hall in Costa Mesa, we immediately put everybody out on distance uh, uh, work. We, we got people set up for remote access. We do not allow people in the building, even to this day without an appointment. We have uh, strict mass compliance at City Hall. Our public safety, we really, until this last uh, holiday period, we did not have hardly any outbreaks within our public safety, our fire departments, our police, even though our fire, you know, our paramedics and firefighters are going out on COVID calls every single day. Um, so we've done a great job. We have a good model. Um, and, and I think that now with deaths, record deaths in uh, Orange County, in California, and in America, um, people they just have to get a clue that this is here, it's real, we must take protective uh, measures. And getting the vaccine out though, is going to be the most important role of any county supervisor and getting it out efficiently, effectively. You know, I've got my own personal story uh, with my own mother and grandmother 
my 94 year old grandmother, it took us three weeks of just constantly on that app to be able to get her her vaccine and we can do better. So that is a whole other topic and it's an important and it's still alive that topic. And I've covered some of that with UCI epidemiologist last week with Andrew Neumer. So it's it's a very germane topic. I need though to set aside that because it's, it's a hot mess going on. We all know that. We all have our own stories about that. And so I wanna move into When I talked about the opaque way that the Board of Supervisors is comfortable transacting business in, the CARES Act spending, there were so many passes that the media took at the press conferences to get an accounting of where the CARES Act money was going. What would you do to force a more transparent conduct of, we can get into the priorities of that, but first, just the transparency that is wanting right now in Orange County. Yes, there's a lack of transparency to the public. There's a lack of transparency to the mayors and to the city managers. And the only people who know anything about what's going on are those five board members and the CEO. So that has to change. How do you pry that loose from them? Well, as a supervisor, you're allowed to ask for information. They kind of have this culture of the board members will get the information, but they won't share it with the public. And I'm not like that. You know, I have uh, consistently been someone who feels that the, the public has a right to know and we shouldn't be afraid of what we're doing if we're doing it correctly, right? So there wouldn't be any reason to withhold it from the public if there's nothing to hide. Um, Contracts, good example. The Othena app, several million dollar contract that from what I- Out of house, right. Yes, it was no bid contract, you know, and no RFP, no vetting to speak of that I'm aware of. I can't see that there's been any vetting. And if there was, again, where's the sunshine? And we can see now that, you know, frankly, they didn't have enough capacity for the need in their system and they didn't do it very well. Um, Then, and then also the language, that's a whole other issue. You know, we don't have multiple, uh, multilingual capacity on the app. So it's only in English and our hardest hit communities are Latinx, Spanish speaking. I mean, we just aren't serving the residents well. Um, So that's one area also you know, as a mayor, I have been for with all 34 mayors. I mean, one of the silver linings of COVID is that all 34 mayors now we meet once a week on a call on Thursday night. And then we have a call on Friday morning with Frank Kim, the CEO, and uh, Clayton Chow, the health officer. And we're able to get a, a briefing, a situational briefing, and then we can ask questions. But even when we asked questions on these calls, what I can tell you is that I'll know more information than what they're sharing, um, but they don't share everything. So we've got to change that culture. We shouldn't be afraid to share information. So to take up the point about the access and and reaching various communities, I noticed how the board belatedly realized there were underserved communities or at least publicly owned that in part and to have the Latino Health Access mm-hmm. CEO, Dr. Braca, she very pointedly at the one that, that the County Board of Supervisors 
invited her to appear at, and she as much gave them, right there under their own noses, a masterclass on what leadership is about. So I don't know if you saw that piece at that point. I mean, everything is archived, so when anybody can look at the meetings at a later date. But I, I mean, that stays with me. Yeah, I didn't see that piece, but I had Dr. Brecca on my uh, mayor's town hall during COVID. I did uh, was weekly. Now it's monthly town hall updates, and I had Dr. Brecca on to talk about what's happening within our hardest hit communities and why we are not getting interventions, treatment. The messaging is not getting out to them, and this is something we've struggled with from the very beginning of the pandemic. I mean, our council is majority Latinx, and we've been hammering on this with the county from the beginning of the pandemic about how you know we're not reaching these communities. I've been saying over and over again, and it just seems to fall on deaf ears. I understand this year, they're finally, this month, I'm sorry, let me re- restate, this week, they're finally uh, gonna do this. But I've been saying we need to partner with the schools. That's the best way to reach our predominantly our Latinx communities uh, with our community school facilitators. They're uh, bilingual. They're used to talking with parents in the school communities. Send texts. We don't utilize the text messaging. There are uh, communities in our county. They're not following social media. They're not on Twitter. They're doing WhatsApp or they're on a texting service. And so we have to reach people where they are, where they get their information, not make them come to us. And that is one of the biggest problems I see as a mayor, as a former council member, school board member, resident. It's all about like trying to, you have to go to them instead of them coming to you. And obviously the point of reaching these communities is because of they were hits and are continuing to be hit so hard. It's lethal to them. And so it's this exercise is, it's a humanitarian crisis under our noses. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Mayor Katrina Foley. She's mayor of Costa Mesa, consumer attorney and candidate for the Orange County Board of Supervisors, second district. The special election is March 9th, and the early voting begins on February 8th. This interview is on January 30th as things continue to develop. The district includes Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach, Cypress, La Palma, Rossmore, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Stanton, Buena Park, Los Alamitos, and Seal Beach. So along with- A little sliver and a little sliver of Anaheim, I learned. Okay. Nobody knew that. It's not on any of the, you know, on the board, when you go to the district two, what cities, it's not in there. But when I was phone banking a couple weeks ago, I was calling in Buena Park and then suddenly my phone bank switched to Anaheim. And I said, Anaheim? I didn't know we had Anaheim in the district. So we looked it all up and there's a little sliver of Anaheim. Uh, So- So will the Board of Supervisors be involved in this year, 2021, to redraw the map? This just occurred to me. Yes, yes. The the Board of Supervisors will vote on the new maps. At what what point? July. In this year. July. It's going to happen in July. Oh, that's because we need to have the U.S. Census data first to know where. And so it... 
there is it is strictly on the board of supervisors to to draw those maps up there is no other kind That's of a for, body for the county board of supervisor districts right um, not for any of the other uh congressional or state districts but just and, for the county board of supervisors and i have no idea from previous iterations how transparent that process is well I don't either because I I know that the last go round it was just kind of done and then it was done and um, I remember a lot of chatter about them um, carving out you know this is a very weird gerrymandered district yes I remember the a lot of chatter that it was speculative that they carved out this area to keep it uh, um, for you know then Supervisor Morlock so. We shall see what happens. Okay. So I want to find out your take on the CARES Act spending was the administrators, finally, they did reveal, they did uh, submit that the payroll was $93 million were spent on from the CARES Act, $93 million for the Sheriff's Department payroll employees, compared to $58 million for the healthcare agency employees. What is your response to that allocation, Mayor Foley? Well, I think that the, what I'll say is that there are in every department needs that are COVID specific. And what I would expect to see uh, to justify these expenditures is that there is some kind of a documentation to show because all of the these funds get audited by the federal government and by the state i don't know if you knew that but we we got cares act funding as a city and so we created a uh, a system for tracking time and expense that's specifically covid related so there should be some documentation that tracks time and expense that's COVID related to justify the expenditure. And if there isn't, then that will be um, really a, a ding on the county in terms of receiving federal dollars. For so, the next round of, of rescue funding. Correct, so we don't want to be in that position. We want the dollars to be spent on COVID specific items. So I'll give you an example. In our city, where it relates to uh, law enforcement, we have our law um, emergency manager who stood up our emergency center. And so all the time that was used to get the emergency center set up, the operations center, get all the technology set up, connect everybody remotely, whatever they did to get it set up, set up the, the communication systems, um, all the things they had to do. That would be time that would be appropriately tracked to COVID related expense and the CARES Act funding to be used or FEMA reimbursement for that. So um, before I you know, say anything about the ratio of allocation, I would want to see the data. I, I like to see the evidence, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I have to see the evidence and the data before making an opinion, expressing an opinion. Um, I know that 
from the optics, it seems like, well, why is that happening? Because the sheriff isn't enforcing the masks. Right. right? That's the concern. Sure. Yeah, I get it. Um, but I also, I also will say, and, and I, I disagree with the sheriff, by the way, on that. Okay. So I think everyone knows that that's not a secret, <laughs> um, but and our police in Costa Mesa are enforcing the masks. And that's one thing people don't realize. The sheriff is not got jurisdiction over the whole county, only the areas that contract with the sheriff's department. So, and the unincorporated areas, which- Right, and so right. like of Costa Mesa, we have our own police department. Same with Newport Beach, same with Huntington Beach. Their chiefs of police in each of those cities, they're the you know top dog in charge in terms of law enforcement, not the sheriff. So people don't really appreciate that. They think that there's this uh, org, org chart where the sheriff is overseeing all the police departments, and that's just not that's not correct. There's a lot of education about the county that needs to be done. That's for sure. Civics lessons need to be done. Absolutely. Um, but, but as far as the ratio goes, you know there there is you know you could just without knowing the data and having the evidence, you could see that um, there are uh, the jails having to get all the jails, uh, PPE, have, there's a lot more expense there probably. Um, the officers get paid more than some of, we could probably hire more healthcare workers for the same price as deputy sheriffs. Um, so, so there's gonna be, a, a, it's gonna be skewed a little bit. Um, but yeah, they should have documentation. It should be all justified and it should be COVID related, period. So can one supervisor board member raise the level of transparency so that the county would not be jeopardized in making the case for additional federal rescue funds in the future? The ones that are starting to come now from the latest legislative Yes, I efforts. think that I think so. And I do think that there are ways that we can create more transparency with the governance of the county, with the budget and the sunshining of the budget um, at the county level. Um, there's now a lot of new tools that are available to have interactive budgets online. We're in the process at our city of put, and I know other cities in the district have done this. We, we have a, a whole IT system overhaul happening right now in the city of Costa Mesa, it's long overdue. Um, but we're gonna be having this uh, new interactive budget online that's gonna be uh, like projected to actual, and you can just drill down online from the privacy of your own home or office and look at, or even on your phone and, and look at it and see what your government is spending uh, your money on. And you can make that accessible to people that are, because I, I broke down the county and all those different kinds of entities, the demographics, including the not so engaged or the stressed out right. essential workers. So that getting, developing is one and then pushing it out to the next and then having it be really accessible. And maybe that's a concern when people thought, well, they were worn out from the Othena app kind of right. navigation. So that's a, still a big lift there. Well, I, I, I guess, guess, you know, well, let me, can I just add one more thing to that? And, and part of that is, yes, we have so many different uh, types of residents, people who are, you know, geniuses, 
down to people who are developmentally disabled and everything in between. And so we have to try to figure out how do we engage all of those kinds of residents. And we're not gonna always reach every person. I mean, I think that's a, a tall order. However, ways that we can make more community engagement possible are through more interactive uh, applications on the website. Also, just being more present in the different cities. I have a plan to do pop-up constituent services in each city on a regularly scheduled basis so that we'll have a presence, we'll have our team there to answer questions, to help people. Our job should be to help people get the resources that they need. Because really at the end of the day, the county, the role of the county is to provide kind of the safety net and the resources, social services and healthcare and, and public safety for the community of Orange County. And so we should be doing more to get those resources and get people of all types knowledge about those resources. So the housing element, it's a, the last realm I'm going to pursue. I so wanted to open up more of the, the people's budget and public safety kind of appropriation, but I'm unfortunately there isn't time like yet to do that. But I, I want listeners to know that I apologize for that. I wanted to ask Mayor Foley about the Board of Supervisor position would allow you to move funds from the county to the cities to provide for more homeless shelter, housing stock and more services. How would you make that happen in the second district? Well, that's right. And, and I think this, is, this also goes to the other issue that I think is the overall issue that people are concerned about with regard to funding and whether or not enough funding is going to, or an equal amount is going to provide for, for health and well-being of our residents. And I think that that's a very fair uh, query and I will be prioritizing that. Um, the mental health service funding that we receive from the, the state, you know, the, the richest of the rich in California get taxed a, a percent that gives funding to the county and it can only be used for mental health services. And so for years, cities like Costa Mesa, like Buena Park, like Huntington Beach, uh, even Newport Beach have been trying to go to the county. Stanton, I hear this from the mayor of Stanton all the time, trying to, to get the county to release some of those funds to give cities uh, uh, access to have social workers, to have uh, psychiatrists and psychologists, and to have more help to serve the needs of the mentally ill as well as homeless in our communities and to get individuals experiencing homelessness off the streets, out of the parks and into housing. And we cannot get access to those funds. They're squirreling it away in an account. And I know even Judge Carter has brought this up to my attention numerous times. Uh, there's many nonprofit groups that have been challenging this. This will be a top priority for me. I will be drilling down on this issue. We will have a task force that we will use to loosen up those funds, get those funds out, not just to the cities. A lot of people don't realize that those funds, many school districts have gone to the county with proposals of how those funds can benefit students on campus, can help with suicide prevention, can give psychological counseling. And right now more than ever, 
after this year of COVID, this is the time like no other that we need to get those funds into the school systems so we can support students because they're struggling right now. So, so how, do you, how does one member of the board open up that log jam? Well, you know, the, the, the board, I have discretion as a supervisor to create my own task force. I don't have to get approval from anyone. I can use my own staff to do this. I can get a community groups and then we do the work and then I present it to the board. I mean, it's agendized then. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And trust me, this is going to be a top priority. It's been something that has been uh, frustrating for, I would venture to say the majority of Orange County cities for at least four years that I know of. So would the people's budget be another part of the board of Supervisor Foley, dog and pony, as you're uh, leveraging more of the funds to uh, to get to those other services that are so so very needed. One of the things that I really want to do is I want to have uh, community workshops on the budget to build more uh, investment by the people into the building of the budget. Now, I'll tell you, me saying this right now, uh, many probably on the fifth floor are just freaking out. They, they can't think of anything worse, right? <laughs> um, because it's a lot more work, right? Um, so a lot of the things that we care about, transparency, access, inclusion, uh, communication, those are hard tasks to, to be able to accomplish. Especially and, with the culture yeah. baked in the, with the idea that those are not priorities. Those right. are not valued. So I'm not naive. It's going to be hard and there'll be a lot of pushback and I can't make any promises, but I'm just going to try and I'm going to, you know, use the skills that I've gained and the leadership strategies that I've gained over the last 20 years serving in our community, all the way from, you know, PTA president to mayor. And a business owner here in the district, um, a lawyer, an advocate, a mom, and the wife of a teacher. I think all these things combined are, are what's going to help me drive what I think voters in this district overwhelmingly are telling us that they want. They want more transparency. They want more uh, resources. And they, they want, at the right now, their biggest priority is they want people that have compassion and care and will lead with science and listen to the experts and not politicize public health issues. Well, Mayor Foley, I have so many more questions. I have to bring this to a close. I thank you so very much for your time today. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. There's so much to say. There's so much work to do. I'm ready to get started. Uh, so let's get this election over so we can get to work. My guest was Katrina Foley, Mayor of Costa Mesa, Consumer Attorney and Candidate for the Orange County Board of Supervisors, 2nd District. The special election is on March 9th. The early voting will begin on February 8th. And this district includes Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach, Cypress, La Palma, Rossmore, Costa Mesa, Newport, Stanton, Buena Park, Los Alamitos, Seal Beach, and a sliver of Anaheim. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with Girl Scouts of OC CEO, Vicki Shep.
Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Vicki Shep, CEO of Girl Scouts of Orange County. That's 20,000 girls, 33,000 girls and adults. Before becoming CEO three years ago, Vicki's held other positions, including Director of Volunteer Management, Vice President of Fund Development, and Vice President of Mission Operations. She previously held leadership positions with several other nonprofit organizations. A product of Seal Beach, California, Vicki earned the Girl Scouts, the highest, the first class award. It's now called the Girl Scout Gold Award. And she completed her Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Studies and her Master's of Arts in Humanities, both from the California State University at Dominguez Hills. It's not just the cookies, folks. We've got some heady life skills development and accountability issues to cover. Vicki Shep comes to us today from her home in Long Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Vicki Shep. Well, thank you so much for this invitation and this time, Claudia. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject, Girl Scouts. I just want to start with this origin story of Girl Scouts. The girls weren't included in Boy Scouting. So uh, is that, that's how it worked, correct? Right. So Julia Gordon-Lowe, our founder, she learned about the scouting movement and came back to the United States. She learned about it in England and came back and realized that as Boy Scouts was starting, that the girls needed this same experience. And so this was at a time when women in the U.S. couldn't get the vote. And she was a 51-year-old woman who decided that girls deserve this. So she gathered 18 girls in her hometown of Savannah, Georgia. She shared what she had learned about a new outdoor and educational program for youth. And she birthed the Girl Scout movement right then and there. These first Girl Scouts blazed trails and really redefined what was possible for themselves and for girls everywhere. And now we're a worldwide movement of over 2 million girls. So it's amazing, right? So, yes. And was it ever the idea that it would become, were boys welcome to join or that was the part of the charter that was going to be girls running this whole show? Yes. So it is an all-female environment and it's stayed that way. You know, the conversation has come up, but we know that it is a safe space for girls to try new things where she can really develop a range of skills, take on leadership roles and just be themselves. So we believe that the girl only space is the important place to be and that our girls need and deserve this space. So we are a girls only organization And we're going to remain that way. We believe that our almost 110-year history of being the best leadership development for girls is the way to go. Well, when you say it all started in Savannah, Georgia, it begs the question, was there a kind of color line that Girl Scouts had to go and navigate over? You know, Girl Scouts has always tried to be inclusive. And, you know, it's one of the things that nationally we're working on. There have been girls of all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, one of the things that Juliet happened to be nearly deaf. So she was very mindful of what it was like to be an outsider. Obviously, she was a white woman, but she really wanted people to be inclusive. 
And we do have troops in every zip code in Orange County, for example. We have troops in every demographic around the country. We have girls of every background who are participating. So the idea of inclusivity, although just like most organizations, sometimes we didn't get it right, we are very mindful now of the importance of being inclusive to the point that we launched in Orange County our all-girl initiative. We launched this last year before the pandemic, and it was decided that our goal was that every girl from every social, cultural, economic, and developmental sphere could have full participation in Girl Scouts, knowing that that was important. So being inclusive has been part of the Girl Scout tradition. And just like we have done for our 110 years, we are getting better at what we do. We are recognizing where maybe we have failed at that and picking ourselves up and investigating what does it mean to be inclusive? How do we build that inclusivity and are beginning to work on that? Nationally, we have a great leader in Judith Batty, who is an African-American woman who has been the first of many things, including this opportunity to lead us at this time. So it is definitely something on the top of mind for us. And we are doing um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion work at the staff level and with our girls and with our leaders. So it's highly, highly important to us to build this sense of inclusion. As in 2021 and leading up to 2021, there has been a blurring of the binary sort of gender identification. How does Girl Scouts deal with that, Vicki Shep? Well, you know, that's a great question as well. And we are a girl serving organization. So if a girl is recognized as a girl in her family, in her community, in her school, um, we serve girls. Okay. The family helps fill out the application. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. The family does. You know, oh, yeah. and Girl Scouts starts in kindergarten. Not that you have to start in kindergarten. A girl can start anytime mm -hmm. she wants. As a matter of fact, I heard about a girl this year who started in 12th grade which is wow. fine. You know, we serve, yeah, it doesn't happen that often, but we serve kindergarten all the way through 12th grade as our girl members. So the parents really have a, a, an incredible piece of both determining whether or not a girl joins, especially at the young age, as well as keeping, being part of her experience at the same time developing independence. So we walk that balance with our girls and leaders in developing that independence. But the parents are definitely the ones who sign up and, and fill out the form. The diversity, equity, and inclusion training, you said to staff, but just, just not to overstate the point here, but does that training reach down into engaging the Girl Scouts to recognize there is a non-binary gender setting in our society at this point? Yeah, you know, some of these would be considered what we would call sensitive topics for girls, right? Okay. You know, there's an, an age-appropriate answer for issues like this. And so the beauty of our program is that it's girl-driven. If the girls and their parents agree that this is a conversation to have in their troop, then because this is a sensitive topic, they would sign a waiver, allow the girls to explore this and understand it better. And so that is really an important piece that we have a national program that's phenomenal. We also have the ability for our girls to explore issues that are important to them. And especially as girls get older and they start to work on 
their top awards, like the Girl Scout Gold Award, the highest award that a girl can earn, she may find her passion in this area. If so, she would work with professionals, with advisors, and the girls involved would have the permission of their parents to be involved in conversations of this nature. And again, it's all age appropriate. What we answer to a kindergartner is very different than a conversation a group of high school Girl Scouts might have. And the parents need to be informed and understand if this is a conversation that that troop is entering and how it's relevant to Girl Scouts. So being girl driven, it's often when it comes up, that is when the leaders, they would reach out to our staff. We have phenomenal staff and our staff would be able to supply them with resources, find some of our program partners who help deliver program. We work with some fabulous agencies in Orange County, other nonprofits who are experts in some areas that maybe our staff isn't, and then they would be able to work with that particular troop, again, based on what the families approve. Well, I guess it sounds like the Girl Scout organization, if this is the way the the business model of the nonprofit, it sounds like it's really more nimble than the Boy Scouts, given the kind of problems they're facing right now with many, many serious legal challenges, that your charter, your ethos may have carried you past ever having the conflicts that the Boy Scouts are dealing with right now. We have very, very few conflicts. Uh, Actually, we have zero tolerance of harassment or uh, issues of that nature. And we handle anything quickly and completely We're really about empowering girls and inspiring them to dream big and do bigger. And when you talk about our ethos, absolutely. We go back to the promise and law, which are our guiding principles and include respect and honesty and responsible for what what I say and do. And so bringing us back to that, I believe that it allows us to have that touchstone of what we're about, who we are. And we are girl safety first. I mean, the health and safety of our girls is our top priority. We have an outstanding track record of safety, and we are very proud of that. And at the same time, our girls have phenomenal life-changing experiences. So you're right. We've been able to be nimble and navigate and provide our girls with life-changing experiences. No, it sounds like a retreat's necessary. Get <laughs> management with the national levels of Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts wouldn't be a bad idea. That I'll just put that aside. So it sounds like this girl-driven aspect is a conscious and an unconscious sort of leadership modeling going on throughout their whole development within the organization. Oh, absolutely. You know, we don't start off with a kindergartner say, we're going to make you a CEO of an organization, or you're going to be the, you know, the top salesperson of a national technology company. It's really fun experiences, learning by doing, cooperative learning. The ways that our girls learn is very intentional, and you're absolutely right. Also, organic. So girls learn how to lead their lives. They learn how to interact. I mean, you and I both know the best leaders are those who have great people skills. Well, what better way to learn people skills than to be with a group who has to decide, well, what are we going to do this year? What are our interests? And 10 girls, two girls might have 
very different interests. And so coming and negotiating what that troop dynamic is, being able to also decide to do something outside of the troop. We have activities that an individual girl can do. And a girl leading her own Girl Scout experience also helps her as she develops what her life experience is. So I love that concept that it is both intentional. It's baked into our program and it always has been. And yet we allow it to be girl driven. So I'm looking at whether you've personally witnessed or are aware of this in your management positions, but, and I'm familiar with how complicated a young girl's development socially is, physically, socially. And I'm just wondering, Vicki, if part of the purview of Girl Scouts is to sort of shuffle the social deck that they're away from their school campus. Now they're with each other on different terms. Is this a kind of a good that comes out of Girl Scouts that gives girls an opportunity after they sort of were beat up in the, the social setting at school? And now, now there are different kinds of leaders, different kinds of contributors within their Girl Scout chapter. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. You know, many of our troops do form around a school entity, but not all. And they certainly don't have to all come from the same school. And what often happens as a girl gets older is she may, they may all maybe go to the same elementary, but then they go to different junior or high schools. So it does provide them this leveling, this, this safe space that we talked about, a brave space for girls. And the social development, we have a great program in our cadet level, which is sixth, seventh, eighth graders, what in my day was called junior high, right? right? And it's called a maze. And the wonderful thing about that is the girls really learn how to develop and navigate relationships. So we know development at, at that level for girls, this is a real tricky time, that middle school time of, of how to navigate relationships, both with your schoolmates, your family, your Girl Scout troop. And so this program is just brilliant at helping girls unpack that. So it could be that they have a pretty messy situation that you described at their school. And this helps them in their Girl Scout troop or their, their group that's going through this program, or it also can help them in their family life, back at school, wherever. And so we're very mindful. We're experts in girls, right? So we know developmentally what those girls at that level need. That also then brings them into their high school years. And what I've seen, which is just fabulous, is once a girl kind of navigates that middle school time, which can be tricky, girls in high school who are Girl Scouts, they will wear their uniform. They will sell their cookies. They have this kind of, this is my identity and they also have some of the best programs in high school, travel and opportunities to meet wonderful executives. And we have girls who are part of our board. They're called board advisory girls. And they're meeting, I and mean, look at our, our board, they're meeting CEOs and attorneys and doctors and, and just this phenomenal group of adults who run our organization through our board of directors. So I think what's great is girls learn how to navigate relationships in such a healthy way through our programs. So I'm just thinking that the continuum of a Girl Scout local leader is somewhere, some sweet spot between being a drill sergeant and a therapist. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's funny. We have a visual. I, if we were on screen, I could show it. But we have this great visual of 
the way that our adult volunteers, who really are the lifeblood of our organization, we could not do what we do with our thousands of girls without our thousands of adults who walk hand in hand with them. And the images that when the girls are a daisy, for example, those are a kindergartner and first grade, the adult is really the leader. The girls are asked their opinion. They help make decisions. But the, the adult is leading. I mean, that's appropriate, right? And so this picture shows the adult in a more bold photograph, and then the girl is a little softer. And then as you go up to our ambassador level, which is our 11th and 12th grade girls, the girl is the bold picture. And the leader, we often will call them advisors. They take a little bit more of a backseat. They're there for safety and for advisement. And so, yes, you know, our troop leaders have amazing skill sets. Sometimes troop leaders change. So a girl might have one troop leader up until fifth grade. And then there's another adult, a responsible adult who has the skill set to navigate those middle school years. And then they might go into a troop of all high school girls that have even different leadership or a leader often will stay with the troop the entire time, you know, through their 13 years. And what I hear from those leaders is that they, all those girls become their daughters and they, as the adult, this is the secret sauce. They learn so much. They learn about themselves. They learn how to be leaders. They learn skills they never were interested in, but they do it because their girls were leading. So we have two non-related adults who are part of every troop at least two, and they experience transformation in similar ways to the girls. And I just can't thank them enough. Sometimes I say I'm a professional thank you -er, because they are the ones who make a difference. You know, I know when I was a Girl Scout here in Orange County, my leaders, Mrs. Cabe, Mrs. Harbor, and some others in Seal Beach were the lifeblood. You know, I still remember what they were able to do for me. So for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Vicki Shep, CEO of Girl Scouts of Orange County. Well, I know everybody's wondering now, what about the cookies? <laughs> Haven't been brought up yet, and I promise that. So there are a lot of plates in the air. There's the pandemic, there's the sourcing of the ingredients that's showing up on different platforms. There's the, we'll just make a little bit about the incentive structure. How does that fit in with the ethos of Girl Scouts? and uh, people can still buy them. This is, they are happening and that they have a start and we're taping this on January 29th. First of all, sales are now open, correct? Yes, sales are open. Um, girls are selling on their apps and uh, to their families and friends and our sales started on January 11th and it runs into mid-March and it is going well. The girls are happy. And the cookies are flying out. So we are really happy to have this little taste, uh, pun intended, of normalcy for our girls. This, well, yes. this and quickly year. tell us how, what, walk us through the steps to getting these uh, remotely, arranging to get the cookies. Sure. So if someone doesn't know a Girl Scout and doesn't know right now how to get get them. And there they are their couple, fix. Yeah, they're waiting. They, yeah, there are they a couple ways. Um, one is they can simply email us and it's customer care at girlscoutsoc.org. So they could simply email that. We'll put them in touch with the local Girl Scout. That Girl Scout will be able to sell cookies 
through her app, it's contactless. The other thing is if someone is in the Mission Viejo, Irvine, or Yorba Linda areas, they can get it through Grubhub. Now, Mission Viejo started yesterday for Grubhub, and then Irvine and Yorba Linda start on February 1st. So that's another thing. And, and we're very excited about that because the girl is still selling the cookie, which is the important thought part, because that's her program. That's her business. And the delivery agents are the ones delivering it to keep our girls safe. So that's another one. We also have some other opportunities such as the Great Girl Scout cookie buyout. And this is a really fun way for an individual, a business, a group of people to help a Girl Scout troop that would normally have a booth, you know, the booth in front of um, a grocery store or bank or what have you. Those we aren't doing in the current situation. So this buyout is a minimum of 50 packages of cookies. And it's a fun way to support a troop. And that information is on our, our website as well. And it's called the Great Girl Scout Cookie Buyout. And it really does support Girl Scout troops during this challenging time. So it's like they're buying all the cookies that they might be selling at a booth. And the sourcing, I guess you have to deal with this every year. And it was broken down for me rather nicely a week ago where I was told, you know, there's like the shelf life, there's the stability the fat source that's used in the cookies. So you're sort of stuck with your options. How is Girl Scouts trying to solve this? All right. So you're right. Palm oil is an ingredient found in the majority of baked snacks that are sold in the United States. So we have a licensed baker that does our Girl Scout cookie. Has told us that it's necessary to use palm oil in our cookies to ensure their shelf life. This really helps keep the quality products Our goal is to continue towards certified sustainable palm oil, which is in higher demand, and it is comprised of legal, economically viable, environmentally appropriate, and socially beneficial management and operations. So this is not a specific Girl Scout issue. We advocate for and secure the participation of our bakers with the roundtable on sustainable palm oil to ensure that they are following safety and ethical standards, including those around labor. That's a big you know, one too. It's really important to us. And we hold our bakers, our cookie bakers to that standard. So GSUSA is an affiliate member of the RSPO, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And we are working toward this sustainability piece very closely. And if we find something out, the GSUSA team is right on it and works with the bakers to solve whatever the issue is. And I learned from a chemist that just because there's an alternative element used in the manufacturing of anything, it may may not be an improvement. So you have to like really clear the consequences of the substitution. So it's, it, I'm, I can imagine it's really a complicated, a supply chain kind of a, an issue for, for Girl Scouts. Yes, exactly. Everybody. So is there any breaking ground, any scoop you want to give Ask a Leader as our last question together, Vicki? Well, I really like to highlight our mission statement because I feel that it speaks volumes to who we are. And our mission statement is that we, Girl Scouting builds girls of courage, confidence, and character who make the world a better place. 
you know, it's not just something we say, this is what we do. And every day I have the privilege to hear how our girls are doing that from our youngest girls who are daisies, who might be making dog toys for an animal shelter to our oldest Girl Scouts who are working on their Girl Scout Gold Awards in issues that they are passionate about. I see how our girls are making the world a better place. And I couldn't be happier or more proud to be leading an organization that is committed to bringing our girls into leadership in such a wonderful, fun, and uh, important way. Vicki, my last question. What Girl Scout has broken the highest glass ceiling in the U.S.? So these Girl Scouts were Secretaries of State Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, and Condoleezza Rice were all Girl Scouts. And we are very proud that we have such fabulous women who have broken glass ceilings all in other areas as well. But as far as in politics, those are the three who have broken the highest ceiling. Well, Vicki, I thank you so much for your time today on Ask a Leader. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Claudia. I am so happy that we had this opportunity and I wish we had more time to talk about all the great things that our girls and our volunteers are doing. Well, people can go to all of your websites and look up at the, the latest that's going on. And I am sorry, we, we're, we're limited in our time. My guest was Vicki Shep, CEO of Girl Scouts of Orange County, as we head into cookie sales season and beyond. talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening. Masks, because you care about your fellow humans.